Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hi there, so my name's Mark Smith. This was my blurb that I sent through. Um, and, and really my key question uh, for the next half an hour or so is what is to be done? Which, which is really to say, what can we as individuals, uh, as, as members of institutions, whether that's higher education institutions or cultural institutions do? Uh, what can we do individually? What can we do collectively? What can we do collaboratively? Um, as I mentioned in the blurb, uh, I'm a little bit wary about the word uh, decolonizing or, or decolonization. Uh, for me, the, the kind of issues that we're dealing with within higher education and, and cultural institutions and the world more generally uh, are much more intersectional, I guess. Um, so, you know, as, as I wrote, uh, you know, I'm, I'm much more interested in questions of equitability, diversification, accessibility, um, and, and inclusivity more generally. You know, I'm, I'm interested more in social and civic and environmental and health justice in general. Um, and, and I think, you know, decolonization kind of falls within that remit. Um, I think decolonization is, is you know, the, the most recent kind of way of thinking through some of these issues. Um, and of course, one needs to historicize decolonization because it emerges in different historical moments in different geographical locations and uh, and has a very different genealogy uh you know whether it's being used um in kind of pan-african uh independence uh, conferences in the 50s and 60s whether it's being used in higher education 20 30 years ago in in south and central america uh, or whether it's being used in the context of the uk uh, and its own legacies of uh, colonialism and empire, uh, which of course we're still living through, and will continue to to live through in uh, in perpetuity. Um, I think we're we're always uh, in the wake, as Christina Sharp would put it, in the wake of uh, of colonialism. So. Uh, social, civic, environmental and health justice and the intersectional nature of everything. <laughs> um, I'm really interested in, as well in, in this idea of um, labour, of, of how we can think about uh, the, the circulation of labour within higher education and cultural institutions. And that's to say um, both the physical labour and the emotional labour, you know, the, the burden of responsibility that falls on people doing race work and wanting to make sure that that's more equitable, more equitably distributed uh, across institutions. So, um, so that's something that I'll uh, hopefully be talking about a little bit uh, in the next half an hour. I think I probably would have started out by speaking a little bit with you guys about positionality, um, which is to say, you know, how to think about introducing ourselves, why to to think about the the very question of what it means to introduce ourselves in particular ways. Um, you know, the question of pronouns, which has come to the fore over the last few years, um, perhaps even more recently, the issue around audio description, 
uh, for folks that are blind and partially sighted and, you know, some of the intrinsic sort of, you know, ableist uh, machinery uh, that, that props up and is perpetuated um, and, and exacerbated, I think, by Zoom uh, and, and other forms uh, of, of uh, communication that, that we've been so reliant on over the last couple of years. So, um, you know, I'd have wanted to start with a little bit of a conversation about who's here, you know, why you're here, who isn't here, um, why not, and, and what that's about. And, and those kinds of questions relate a little bit to one of the paragraphs in the book, which looks like that uh, and is free to download, um, as everything that I do is um, and, and as I should and I th uh, as I think it should be. So um, I'm just going to read a, a quick paragraph from page 16 um, just to get us starting to think uh, about some of these issues of, of decolonization within the context of cultural institutions um, and for the time being uh, institutions of higher education. So who's teaching? What are we teaching? How's it been taught? Under what conditions and via what under-acknowledged epistemological, organisational and behavioural assumptions is it being taught? How and why is structural or systemic racism, as well as classism, sexism and ableism, woven as it is into the very fabric of a building or curriculum or the protocols of a discipline such as fine art, product design, fashion and so on? What are these lessons Sorry, who are these lessons being taught to? Who's in the room? And by extension, who isn't? And who's it working for? Which I think is a really key question. Who's it working for? With, uh, with all of this talk of a return to normal, you know, one, one needs to, to be very wary um, of what it means to default to, to positions that weren't working um, for, for people, uh, for very particular kinds of people, both within higher education, cultural institutions, um, and, and also more generally. So that's how I would have kicked us off. I said I wouldn't talk about statues, so I won't. That's what I'm going to do today. Um, I'm going to talk about higher education institutions. Uh, I'm going to talk about cultural institutions. I'm going to talk about research. Uh, and the figure of the researcher. I'm going to talk about some projects that we've done with students over the last three or four years, uh, MA and PhD students. I'll talk a little bit about the decolonizing book. Uh, and then also uh, at the end about the journal of visual culture. And, you know, just, just to reiterate the question that, that I've always got at the forefront of my mind is, you know, what's to be done? which is also to say, you know, what can we do? Uh, how can we contribute? Um, how can we be, without being too cliched, the kind of the agents of change uh, to make some kind of difference, what, whatever kind of difference we can, how can we use our power and knowledge and authority such as it is uh, to, to make a, a difference, however small uh, it might be? And why does that matter? Okay. So starting off with institutions of higher education. Um, I think Exeter is probably quite a good example of the kinds of thing that's gone on in the last couple of years. 
uh, around the um, <laughs> the sudden realization that uh, that the the curriculum needs to be decolonized, that research needs to be decolonized, uh, that higher education itself needs to be decolonized. Um, you know, with with a kind of a cursory search on Google, uh, which is not innocent for sure. Um, you know, I, I came across a, a series of links to what's been going on at Exeter um, and, and it follows quite a, a familiar narrative. You know, you, you have the journalistic expose drawing attention to uh, some of the issues that are going on that, that haven't been acknowledged, uh, that need to see the light of day, that need to be shared very widely. Um, maybe the expose happens before uh, the summer of the anti-racism protests of 2020, uh, maybe immediately afterwards. Uh, but for sure, I think that that period, uh, that period of the, the summer of 2020 uh, is really quite kind of significant, uh, or it certainly functions as a marker, uh, a transition from um, uh, a willful ignorance uh, around these issues by a lot of individuals and institutions um, to, to a bit of a, a wake up call um, better late than never, I guess. Um, so, you know, we have the expose, then, you know, we, we have a lot of material being generated, you know, in the first lockdown as well, you know, you, you have to remember, uh, you know, conditions really aren't conducive um, to, to people trying to get their heads around these things as if for the first time. But, you know, a lot of materials being generated by departments, um, uh, by institutions like, you know, the decolonizing reading list at Exeter. Um, and, you know, it takes a couple of years for something like the public events, like the festival, like, you know, the celebration by the institution uh, to, to be manifest. Um, you know, I think the festival is a great thing. Uh, I'm really glad that it's happening. Um, there, there need to be as, as many and as, as varied a conversation going on within institutions and and I think even more importantly between institutions um, and their communities of interest their communities of practice the stakeholders um, you know living and working in in the city uh, and in the region these things aren't just issues for higher education um, they're, they're certainly not things for higher education uh, to solve uh, and certainly not to solve on their own so Exeter's one example, you know, UCL, you know, I'll just give you UCL as, a, as another example where, you know, we, we had a very similar kind of process here, you know, where, um, you know, every department, every faculty uh, releases guidelines uh, on how to do this and how to do that. Um, I think there's uh, a lot of uh, scurrying around by departments, um, showing their interest, their commitment, um, their understanding of what it means to decolonize. You know, decolonizing history is different from decolonizing the history of medicine, is different from decolonizing the arts, is different from decolonizing the classics and so on and so forth. So, you know, every department, every subject area uh, needs to be thinking quite carefully uh, about that discipline, about that subject area, about the um, the disciplining nature, if you like, of that discipline, uh, what's permittable, what's possible, uh, 
again, what, what needs to be done and, and what individual members of staff and, and staff teams uh, more collectively are, are willing to do on behalf of their institution, on behalf of their discipline uh, yeah. and on behalf of their students. And I have a dog which might occasionally bark. I warn you in advance. Uh, UCL is an interesting case, I think, um, because the institution has been aware uh, of its history of scientific racism for quite a while. Um, back in the mid to late 19th century, it was very closely involved in the establishment of eugenics. Um, Galton, uh, Darwin's cousin, was, was intimately involved, um, not just in establishing eugenics itself, um, but, but in it permeating UCL in the late 19th and early 20th century. So we'd already had a lot of projects around uh, the history of scientific racism within the institution. Um, there, there was already uh, an un, well, a denaming and renaming committee uh, that was looking at buildings uh, and, and looking at the, uh, the reasons why and the need to uh, dename and, and rename. Um, a lot of projects as well as I go to my next slide, um, a number of which were organised by my former colleague Sabadra Das, uh, who was working as a curator um, in the special collections. Uh, she put together a Bricks and Mortals tour, uh, which was a walking tour of the UCL campus uh, and Bloomsbury more generally, uh, telling the story of the history of scientific racism uh, through UCL's buildings, which was a fantastic way uh, to start the year with the, the new students. Uh, we'd always enlist Sabadra um, to, to help us out with uh, beginning to expose the institution uh, and, and you know what it is and how it works, which is one of the things that we're always really interested in doing. Um, Sabadra was also involved with one of her colleagues um, at the Grant Museum, which is UCL's um, zoology museum, uh, uh, you know, decolonizing uh, the natural history collection uh, and, and drawing attention to its relationship to uh, the history of empire um, and coloniality more generally. So, um, you know, there, there's been a lot going on at UCL over the years uh, and, you know, I, I think there probably has been at Exeter as well. Um, you know, the, the question, which for the time being is a rhetorical question, um, is why did it take the summer of the anti-racism protests uh, to wake everybody up and to start taking it seriously and to start doing something about it more actively, more visibly? Um, why weren't people doing it before? Uh, and if they were doing it, what were they doing? Uh, so, you know, just to go back for a sec, actually, um, there was at UCL and, and continues to be an, an ongoing project um, around legacies of British slave ownership, uh, which has been going for 12 or 14 years. And, and that's maybe a good example of one of those pre-existing long-term projects um, that draws attention to an institution's long-term commitment to these issues. There's some really fascinating research that's been done there, um, particularly around uh, insurance and uh, all of the insurance companies in the 18th and 19th century uh, that were involved in insuring uh, insure, um, ships, 
as as a as a part of the transatlantic slave trade um and the amount of money that was made by all of the insurance companies um that that we've heard of and 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 that we know today um from the uh the trafficking uh in in slaves from from west africa and and from the caribbean uh to to the uh outposts of of the british colonies and um and to the uk itself of course so um yeah let's uh let's move on briefly um to cultural institutions you know ju just to say that you know rather than talk these things through what i wanted to do was just to include a whole bunch of links uh to some cultural institutions that released statements um very quickly after the anti-racism protests of 2020 um, evidencing their commitment, um, evidencing their their pledge to this, that and the other, um, detailing their action plans. And in, there are some links here to very different kinds of cultural organisations from the Camden Arts Centre to Tate to uh, the Barbican uh, to the Live Art Development Agency and the Welcome. I wanted to give you a range um, so, so that you could have a look and, and have a think about what it means for different kinds of institutions to, to make statements uh, on their own behalf uh, and in support of what. Um, I think, you know, one, one wants to look really carefully uh, at what they've said they're going to do uh, and have a look to see whether in the last two years things have been done, whether anything has changed. Uh, whether these are short, mid or, or long term plans. Um, and, and of course, it's all well and good, you know, to to make statements and to come out and support. Um, but but at the same time, you know, one one really wants to see, um, you know, long term uh, substantial change within cultural institutions. Um, and, you know, one one wants to track really carefully to see whether the kinds of um, pledges that were made uh, two years ago uh, have actually borne fruit. You know, I, I think it's been a really tough time uh, without being an apologist, but, you know, I think COVID didn't help. I think, you know, 12 years of austerity under the Tory regime hasn't helped. I think Brexit hasn't helped. I think that Trump didn't help. I think that the war in Ukraine, the ongoing war in Ukraine uh, isn't helping either and nor is the cost of living crisis. Um, which also hasn't come out of the blue. You know, it's it's been trundling along very systematically under most people's radars for the last 12 years. So, you know, I, I think, you know, kind of working in higher education, working in cultural institutions under those conditions is incredibly challenging. You know, that said, I think, you know, what we saw cultural institutions do um, during during COVID and, and since is is more often than not, make incredibly uh, conservative decisions uh, about revamping their business plans, uh, about uh, putting staff on furlough, uh, about sacking fractional members of staff um, and staff on precarious contracts, you know, a very high proportion of whom uh, are black and brown staff, um, you know, the education teams, the learning teams, the uh, diversification teams, the um, the so-called outreach teams, 
uh, the community engagement teams and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, these, these institutions are busy making public statements, but at the same time, the way that they're behaving uh, wouldn't really seem to bear out um, their, their commitment. Um, so, yeah, one wants to keep a close eye on that. Uh, I also included some links to some of the discussions that were taking place within higher education at the time. Um, I thought the Royal College of Art and, and Goldsmiths were particularly interesting, um, just for how volatile they were, how contradictory they were. Um, the mismatch, let's say, between the, um, the official statements that the institutions were putting out, um, statements from individual members of staff, um, and then incredibly powerful statements from student unions as well, uh, on behalf of the student body and all of its diversity. So I think they're, they're well worth um, having a look at. Uh, you know, ju just to mention as well, briefly in passing, there, there was of course a huge backlash uh, to cultural institutions and, and institutions of higher education uh, coming out in support of, of Black Lives Matter uh, in that summer, you might recall. Um, and I think that that's worth uh, being reminded of if, uh, if you don't. You know, Tate, for instance, um, was called out immediately um, for, for dropping its, uh, its black images on Instagram and uh, a lot of other cultural institutions were. You know, all it did was draw attention to the hypocrisy that, that underpins these organisations. Um, you know, which, as you'll know, um, are, are more or less directly or indirectly uh, founded uh, on on the back of uh, Enlightenment thinking, uh, of empire, of nationalism, uh, and of uh, colonisation uh, and its legacies as well. So you know, Tate being a particularly good example of that, and. Um, of course, you know, historically, um, somewhere like Tate, but it's also true of, of most nationals and, and most institutions generally, uh, to be honest, you, um, you have to understand and accept that they emerge out of the period uh, of, of British Empire um, and, and as such are always already kind of born into that historical moment. Um, and as such, I'd say, can't actually be uh, decolonized uh, to to the extent that you know with with every fiber of their being with every fabric uh, of their being uh, they they are born of it and and tied to it. Um, of course, there are lots of things that one can do. You know, there are, there are lots of ways that one can be involved in this ongoing process of decolonization, um, and that's something that that I'll go on to to talk about in a little while. Um, I think the point being, though, if you're Tate, you need to be very careful about the kinds of pledges you make, the, the kinds of statements of support you make, um, especially when, as an institution, you've got a reputation for not treating your staff particularly well, uh, of laying people off left, right and centre, uh, and of being involved in, in all kinds of incredibly uh, difficult situations um, with, with not just existing staff but but also external partners uh, and phd students as well there are you know a number of um research council funded uh collaborations with tate 
um, that haven't been going particularly well um, and um, coming out in uh, in support of Black Lives Matter when when you're not working particularly well with with your black and brown students um, is uh, well hypocrisy isn't it really so you want to watch that okay so I'm going to speak a little bit now I'm 26 minutes in I'm going to speak a little bit uh, about research, the figure of the researcher and, and how we think about situating ourselves. And, and this is really just a few minutes of talking about what we mostly do uh, with our MA students uh, within Art, Design and Museology uh, here at UCL. Um, but I think it's, it's also relevant for, uh, for PhD students as well. Um, so, you know, the, the first thing that, that we do is we spend a bit of time talking about the figure of the researcher, you know, which is to say we, we spend a bit of time talking about you, uh, what you do, how you do it, why you do it, you know, and, and keeping those questions in mind um, is really important. Um, it's related, as, as I was saying earlier on, to this, this issue of positionality and and the position from which one speaks, the position from which one has the power and authority to speak. Um, it's about being discursive. It's about being reflexive and self-reflexive. It's about um, understanding those things and recognizing they're the starting point uh, for one's research and also for one's activity as a researcher. You know, whether you're somebody who speculates, somebody who reads, somebody who uses archives, somebody who's more experimental or, or more of an activist, um, you know, one one wants to be thinking really carefully about the starting point, uh, the the point from which one research, the point from which one's research starts, um, and how one understands one's own positionality in relation to that. So, you know, that's something that we do with the students um, in the the dissertation module at the end of their MA program. But, you know, throughout the year, we're, we're constantly talking about this because, you know, the MA students that, that I work with most regularly um, on the MA Museums and Galleries and Education, they want to be curators. They want to be educators. They want to be researchers. They're going to go and work in museums and galleries in heritage organisations all over the world. And, you know, the first thing that we want them to do is to be able to understand themselves and their position in relation to the institution uh, what their role is, uh, what their responsibility is, and um, and how they're accountable uh, to their audiences, uh, which is obviously super important for us as well. So, the figure of the researcher um, with with the dissertation module, but but also in general, uh, we we usually kick off with. Uh, these two quotes, one from anthropologist Aaron Apajurai and one from post-colonial critic Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak. Um, they're very much about research and, you know, seeing as we're meant to be talking about decolonizing research, uh, it made sense uh, to include them for you here. Uh, the Aaron Apajurai quote I like in particular because of the way that it draws attention to research as a subject of research. It's not something that we're usually aware of. As, uh, as he says, it has the invisibility of the obvious about it. Um, and, and I think that, you know, one of the things that we're always wanting to do with our students is to draw attention to research 
you know, the machinery, the mechanisms, the operations of research, you know, how it functions, why it functions in the way that it does, and what they have the capacity to do as researchers. And that's really where the Spivak quote kicks in, you know, realising that it's not that there's a body of pre-existing material out there that determines the questions you need to pose to it, but that the questions that we ask, that the questions that we as researchers ask, actually leads to the shaping, the formation, uh, the establishing of these, these bodies of knowledge um, that, that we do research on. And so, you know, understanding what it means to think very carefully about the questions one wants to ask is vital. It's the questions that contribute to shaping uh, and, and determining the, the, the epistemological and ontological questions uh, that one wants to engage with, which are then kind of generative of new knowledge, of new ways of seeing, of new ways of understanding, of new ways of knowing uh, and doing. So, you know, in relation to this MA dissertation module, we... Um, we talk about this idea of research as a promising subject for research and, and we speak early on about the need to situate ourselves uh, and what it means to, to think about that. Um, you know, it, it's kind of drawing on these, these discourses around situated knowledge um, and, you know, part of what we're trying to do throughout the MA and I think also with the PhD students that I work with as well is to think about different kinds of regimes of knowledge you know, and, and to not just to be locked into Enlightenment or post-Enlightenment um, epistemologies, you know, but to be looking at kind of feminist epistemology, critical race studies epistemologies, um, you know, different uh, ways of thinking about situated knowledge, indigenous knowledge, uh, and, and a whole variety of other kind of ways of understanding the world um, that have been... Uh, to a certain extent, uh, kind of elbowed out of the equation uh, because of the privileging of, of uh, uh, a Euro-American, Westocentric, Global North version uh, of epistemologies that emerge uh, out of the Enlightenment. So, you know, situating ourselves in relation to positionality, in relation to our sense of ourselves as researchers, obviously that's a really important starting point. We're always wanting to get the students to think about how to situate themselves institutionally, you know, which is to say in relation to their own institution and institutions of higher education in general, um, but then also in relation to the creative and cultural industries um, and the situation that they find themselves in with regards to those institutions. We also talk quite a lot about practice. Uh, about doing, you know, so this question, you know, what can be done? What is there to do? Um, you know, is, is very much a question about doing. It's very much a question about practice. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the Institute of Education where, where a lot of people are trained as teachers. And so, you know, the, the institution as a whole thinks quite carefully about that. You know, we in art, design and museology are, are looking very much at, at more kind of critical, radical uh, traditions of, of pedagogy uh, that emerge, you know, from the pedagogy of the oppressed in, in the late 60s uh, through to now. 
and um and you know we're we're always looking to to think about kind of pedagogy itself as a critical practice so you know the way that we do things in the classroom the way that we engage with cultural institutions um the the different ways that the students can think about learning within museums and galleries and heritage you know it it's absolutely not a didactic paradigm uh you know and is is very much about things like co-production co-creation um participation and i'll uh, i'll speak a little bit more about participation uh, and collaboration most importantly in a while um so we get them to think about situating themselves in relation to themselves in relation to institutions in relation to practice uh, and then also in a more planetary way as well which is to recognize the incredibly complex networks uh of relations that exist kind of locally and globally uh between very different kinds of actants um and and what we do i'm just you know very quickly uh for for the purposes of um alliteration we uh we we talk right at the beginning of the program about the relationship between three kind of networks or ecologies or or series of relations people places and politics um and so that kind of gives you a sense of um how how we do what we do within the MA program um but but also the kinds of things that can be done uh within MA programs within PhD programs uh, there's no reason not to be drawing attention to these things there's no reason not to be exposing the mechanisms of how higher education works of how cultural institutions work how knowledge works you know the privileging of certain kinds of knowledge over others and and what it means to to try and uh create a more equitable environment where different kinds of systems of knowledge and different uh epistemological traditions uh are available uh are given equal weight uh, can be drawn on uh, can be utilized uh especially for phd students whose projects are theirs you know and and so you know i think there needs to be uh, an acknowledgement a recognition uh uh a celebration even of the fact that uh, uh students phd projects uh can actually kind of shape and dictate uh the the body of knowledge uh that they're drawing on and uh and that they're producing and sharing and um and it's really the institution's responsibility to rise to the challenge of that uh, rather than to tell them they can't do it i uh, i don't see anything in the regulations ever that say you can't do this um so i think you know every opportunity a student has uh you know to encourage their supervisors uh their department their institution um to engage with 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 some of the you know incredibly productive tensions that emerge around you know doing research differently i uh, i really do encourage you to do that in a respectful and productive way of course okay um just as an aside uh we we actually got a directive at UCL last year uh telling us that we needed to decolonize our uh, our bibliographies and uh and we we'd been already doing that kind of thing for years we'd already um been really clear about the fact that as a 
as an MA programme that was interested in museums and galleries and education, uh, a programme that had been running for 20 years. Um, you know, we'd, we'd always been really interested in, in social and civic justice. Um, and, you know, as I've written here, questions of accessibility, inclusivity and diversification. Um, and that, that was woven into the fabric of the programme. It was woven into the fabric of... Um, of the modules, it was woven into what was taught and how it was taught, uh, the people that were coming in to teach on the module, the trips that we were going on, and um, the people that we were speaking to there, um, as well as the uh, the bibliography itself. And we'd, we'd actually added this statement uh, a couple of years before the summer of 2020, um, just as a way of drawing attention to the fact the, that we were already aware of these issues, um, that you know, we believed very passionately in them, that we cared about them a great deal, um, but that there was also you know, a burden of responsibility on the students um, you know, to share what they knew, to share what they were reading, to share what mattered to them, and that you know, between us we could work on developing you know, an even more extensive, even more um, valuable resource for students. To come, so you know this. This, uh, I mean, what you might call a social contract, um, you know, between us and the students. And you know, UCL is very aware of what its responsibilities are towards the students. But one of the things that we've been trying to do in the last few years is to encourage students to think about what their responsibilities are uh, to the institution. And you know, the, the, there are ways of working together um, in, in more equitable ways um, that can be beneficial for everyone. You know, as long as people like me. Um, not just white, straight, middle-aged, middle-class people like me, uh, but people like me in higher education with power and authority uh, can be creating environments that are more conducive to that, you know, where the hierarchies are much flatter, where the power is, is distributed in more equitable ways, um, and where we're creating environments which are much, as much about kind of listening and, and learning from one another uh, as they are about talking. Um, yeah, I'm a very big fan of listening. I know you wouldn't believe it, but it's true. Okay. I said I wouldn't talk about statues. Um, I'm going to very briefly. I'm going to, um, because they've just become such a lightning rod, uh, for discussions in the cultural wars over the last couple of years. You know, a very phony war, I think, uh, orchestrated by the right as a way of trying to discredit um, the, uh, the left, if you want to be so uh, clumsy in, in making that distinction. Um, I think one needs to, you know, be wary of, uh, of the culture wars and of getting involved and of falling into its, its protocols uh, because it's a setup. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly don't think it'll help anyone who's interested in uh, equity issues of, of uh, accessibility, inclusivity and diversification, for instance, um, you know, getting involved in an argument uh, with a bunch of right-wingers. Uh, about bringing down statues. Um, 
I think it is really interesting, though, that statues have become the fulcrum around which, you know, so, so many of these issues um, congregate. You know, I think statues are incredibly interesting um, as, as objects, as historical objects, as monuments, as memorials, uh, as sites for debate and, and contestation. And, um, and of course, you know, they carry the, the history of nation and the, the history of empire uh, and the history of, of colonialism with them. Uh, so, you know, it, it does matter a great deal. It is super interesting. Maybe if we'd have had time to chat, we could have talked some more about this. Um, the reason why I'm mentioning it now, though, it's, it's twofold. Very quick points. The first is that I am incredibly conscious of the extent to which the, the writer using the phrase common sense uh, to describe everything that's wrong in the culture wars. And, uh, and I think that one needs to be really careful about this phrase, common sense, um, when it's being used in the way that it is used. So, you know, the National Trust um, is woke, apparently. Um, you know, as far as I understand, the National Trust is just doing some basic historical research. Uh, it turns out that they've unearthed, um, you know, a, a, a swathe of... Uh, of their sites that, that were owned by slave owners, you know, shouldn't be surprised at that. Um, but it's not like they've suddenly woken up to it. They've been aware of it for a long time. They've been doing research on it for a long time. Um, but, but when we hear a phrase like, you know, it's common sense, people just want to enjoy the countryside. You know, it's common sense. People should have the right to be allowed to just have a cream tea and have a chat and enjoy the pleasant, green and pleasant land um, and to not have to deal with, with all of this ideology, all of this wokery, all of this stuff. Um, it, it does a really good job of, um, of putting a wedge between something that they're characterising as being ideological and something that they're deploying i.e common sense uh, as though it was somehow not ideological and you know I, I think one just needs to be really aware of that and really kind of sensitive to it when when we hear a phrase like common sense I can hear Toby Young in my mind using it right now but a lot of museum and gallery directors have been using it to talk about their refusal to uh, return images and objects and artifacts um, you know, to Greece, to Benin, uh, to South Africa and, and elsewhere, you know, whether that's from the Science Museum, the British Museum or the V&A. So, you know, one, one needs to just be aware of, of, of what it means for, for people to say, it's common sense. We've got the conditions to look after these objects in a much better way than they have. Okay, wary of common sense. The other reason I wanted to flag it up, um, the, the issue of statues, is is really because um, and you know if, if one looks at a slide that like this you get a real sense of it um, different countries have different colonial legacies and you know I, I think it's really important you know to be aware of that you know the, these are all images from before the summer of 2020 um, I think may, oh, maybe silent Sam uh, in, in North Carolina was, was the summer of 2020. But, you know, the, the point being is that whether you're 
looking from the perspective of South Africa or the southern states in the US, um, from Central and Eastern Europe or the UK or any of the former colonies of, of the UK, you know, let alone South and Central America, let alone Canada, let alone Australia. You know, the, the point being is that every country has its own colonial legacy, um, which gets played out in very particular kinds of ways, you know, because of the nature of Spanish or Portuguese or French or Belgian or Portuguese or British colonialism. Um, you know, the, the, um, the legacies that are in place, the, the particular damage that was done, um, you know, physical, bodily, epistemological, um, and, you know, the, the conditions under which it's possible uh, to do something about it, if at all. Uh, you know, truth and reconciliation being one uh, particular model that's available um, in South Africa, you know, but, but may or may not work in, in other places. So just, you know, drawing attention to that relationship um, between countries, nations, um, what it means to be post-colonial, what it means to be involved in anti-colonial struggle. And, and you know, that, that's an, a really important part of, of the ongoing legacies of colonialism as well. And, um, and you know, to recognise how different those traditions are, how, the, how different those trajectories are. Um, and then also how different the debate is uh, within the academic literature and, and um, higher education and cultural institutions as well. So, you know, the fact that there have been, you know, discussions, as I mentioned earlier on, about these things, you know, coming out of Argentina, let's say, you know, for 30 years, um, you know, simply draws attention to the fact that they picked up on these things within higher education at, at a much earlier point than we might have done over here. I mean, let's, let's also not forget that within the UK, you know, we had post-colonial studies, you know, going back to the, the 70s and, and 80s. And, and before that, you know, we, we had incredibly kind of powerful um, traditions of, uh, of black activism in the UK as well as in, in the US. Uh, in in the fifties and sixties, and you know one one shouldn't forget that. You know the the point simply being that they are all uh, country specific, um, and and uh, you know we all need to be attending to the specifics um, of our colonial legacies. Okay, forty eight minutes. I'm going to have to speed up. Uh, student assignments. There's a lot that can be done as members of staff, as PhD students who are working on modules, um, as students who you know, might want to find more interesting ways of uh, working on their own projects, working on their own assignments. These are some examples of things that we've done in the last few years. Um, so yeah, four years ago, we had a, a group of students who were really interested in what it meant to come from uh, mixed heritage. And, and so we uh, developed a project called Mixed Up But In A Good Way, um, that was about what it meant to either be a curator, educator, researcher, artist, designer of mixed heritage, uh, or to be interested in the question of mixed heritage. And what happens when you put that first? So what happens when you put the question of mixed upness at the beginning of your thinking, uh, rather than at the end, rather than as an afterthought? I'm sure you've all taken modules over the years 
where uh, you get to week nine and you finally get the race week and then you get to week 10 and you finally get uh, the, the disability studies week. And, you know, we're constantly trying to mix that up, trying to mess around with that, trying to recognise the, you know, questions of race and class and gender uh, and disability are an integral part of, of everything that we do. Um, and that, you know, obviously, you know, structural and systematic racism and sexism and homophobia and, and ableism permeate um, every institution we find ourselves working in uh, or, or having to uh, engage with, whether that's higher education, cultural institutions, um, education, the police, uh, uh, the health sector and so on and so forth. So mixed up in a good way. Uh, th this was also an opportunity for us to, to think about online and the way of using um, online as a platform uh, for exhibiting and for distributing material. So we were thinking about the content, but, but we were also thinking about the form and the different way that knowledge could be shared, uh, circulated, distributed uh, by way of social media. Um, another project I worked on uh, in Lithuania, where I've got this funny little gig where I work with PhD students uh, in Vilnius Academy of Arts. Uh, they have an annual exhibition, the PhD students, um, and we put this uh, exhibition together um, where the students worked really hard on exploring the, uh, the art school that they're studying in as a body you know, as a, as a body of knowledge, um, which was made up of lots of different parts. And they not only produced work, but they also organised loads of um, activities, you know, from club nights to poetry slams. Um, they did participatory projects with non-academic staff uh, at the art school, so with cooks, um, you know, sitting with them at six o'clock in the morning, peeling potatoes before the canteen opened and chatting with them about their life in, in post-Soviet Lithuania. Uh, they work with technical staff, with AV staff, uh, most of whom are practitioners as well, but whose practice doesn't really exist uh, within the context of the art school. Um, and we put an education zone at the heart of the exhibition itself. So there were always people there. There were conversations taking place the whole time. Uh, they were inviting uh, activist groups in, um, you know, local communities that would never use the art school uh, and, and making the space of the exhibition available to them to host their own activities and their own events um, and to kind of dis destroy the, uh, the silence of the white cube as an environment in which to experience and appreciate art and visual culture. So um, that was a, a really exciting um student-led project. Um, another for me uh, was this project that we did uh, as part of the NIDA Doctoral School, which is usually based in Lithuania, but three years ago, because the Lithuanian Pavilion uh, was at Venice, we were able to do it over there, which was a, a real privilege. And um, we had an incredible group of 20 PhD students uh, from all over the world, uh, whose practice was incredibly diverse, incredibly interesting. And um, we, we were very much, you know, spending a week talking about power, uh, about kind of the machinery of, of governmentality 
and you know ways that practice enables you to be ungovernable uh, under particular kinds of conditions. And we were kind of focusing, as I said, on you know politics, on the environment, and on the economy, uh, but in particular looking at the way that that practice-led or practice-based PhDs had had the potential, had the capacity uh, to challenge and, and transform uh, systems of oppression. You know, we we also realised that the ways of being together made a lot of difference. So. Um, you know, sitting together, lying together, walking together, being being in much more informal learning environments that we created ourselves, that we chose uh, to be a part of, was really conducive to that. I'm mindful of the time, so I'm going to start whizzing. Uh, something that I've been doing with my students on the MA for the last three years, which is loads of fun, is um, to ask them to rewrite their nation's national curriculum is an incredibly good way of, of getting them to understand uh, the straitjacket uh, that they find themselves in uh, as facilitators of learning when they're wanting to work, for instance, with kids uh, within institutions and they recognise the extent to which those institutions are obliged uh, to deliver learning that's aligned with the national curriculum. Uh, so we get them to take all of their... Uh, social and civic justice thinking and reading, you know, to crack open the curriculum, to rewrite the document, to make it more conducive uh, to learning within museums and galleries and heritage and, and the issues around accessibility, inclusivity and diversification that we share uh, with them. It's a really nice assignment. It's a really good way of kind of drawing people's attention uh, to some of those common sense values, for instance, around citizenship and what it means to be a good citizen. Uh, most recently, we, we organised this project called A Murmuration uh, with a group of students uh, on the curating and educating module. Uh, you can find information about this up on social media. It was very much about participation, about ways of working together, about interdependence and transparency and trust and care and, and what it means to use that as the basis uh, for, for being together and for working together towards a, a common aim towards a common purpose uh, rather than towards common sense. Uh, the students organised four exhibitions which was incredible, public programming, workshops, they brought in groups of kids from local schools, um, they, they worked with local key workers that had been uh, living and working in Angel, uh, the neighbourhood during lockdown. Um, it was a very busy, very kind of vibrant few days. Um, the book, what can I say about the book other than to say that it's available, it's free to download, um, it emerged as a, an event and, and I think it's really important to realise that there are a number of stages that are involved in a project like this. Decolonisation is a process, right? Uh, it's ongoing, it, it never ends and you know you stage a conversation um, here's the blurb that, that went along with the event in, in Lithuania. It becomes a collaborative writing project which turns into a book which you know is manifest as a co-authored book. Um, but it's ongoing, you know, and I think that that's the, the key. You know, it, it's all well and good getting involved in decolonization as a form of uh, epistemic disobedience, uh, as Walter Manolo calls it, but I think it's an ongoing 
project and you know it's it's the responsibility of all of us i talk a bit about this in in the book in the introduction to the book about white privilege about um you know the power and authority that that white academics and white students have and you know what their res- roles and responsibilities need to be as well around sharing the race work um around the the need for us to be engaging in in what achille memembe calls epistemic diversity which i think is really at the heart of it and that's it for this episode don't forget to like rate and subscribe and join me next time where i'll be talking to somebody else about researchers development and everything in between Thank you.